Instead of a mantra, in this episode, Dr. Jolene Caro gives us the most powerful question you can ask another person. I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'll let her tell you in our interview. Let's go meet Dr. Caro. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach. Dr. Caro retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service and is currently working as a research scientist for Lockheed Martin. Dr. Caro earned her PhD in international psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Dr. Caro's dissertation was focused on compassion fatigue in wildlife rescue and rehabilitation workers in South Africa. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, Dr. Caro. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. And I start off every episode by asking our guests, how full is your plate? Can you give us a quick peek into your day-to-day life? (laughs) Well, there is the husband and the pets piece, which is the fun piece of my life. But typically I get up at three o'clock in the morning because that's the only time I can find to go to the gym. So that's sort of my self-care and I work out and then I head into work where I have about a million different projects on my plate at any given time, which is fun. I actually really like it. Also a panda ambassador for the World Wildlife Fund. I'm a civil society representative for the Beijing 25 which is part of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. I'm a member of the Board of Directors for the Leadership Transition Institute, which doesn't actually take as much time as I thought it would. It's kind of nice. It's something I can get involved in, but it's a little bit more low-key for me. And I'm doing an expert review for the first order draft of the working group contribution to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment. I'm reviewing the chapters on innovation, technology development, and transfer, and I'm about to attend project management school for work. So that's kind of my life. (laughs) That's quite a lot on your plate. You must have a big plate. (laughs) It's a big plate, yeah. I like to have a lot going on all at once. (laughs) And how do you handle everything that's going on seemingly at the same time? Well, so a lot of the projects that I have going on is sort of either self-paced or it's not extremely demanding. My job is extremely demanding and I travel a lot for work. So I get a lot of time on planes to do like with the reviewing of the chapters and working on the Beijing 25, things like that. I have a lot of time actually when I am traveling on a plane or when I get home, I kind of set aside a little bit of time. I think it's a matter of prioritizing things and not taking anything on that has really heavy work and strict deadlines. If something has a lot that needs to be done, then I sort of scale back on the smaller things. But right now, it seems like a lot, but they're all sort of a little less time consuming or they have longer time frames that I have to kind of complete things, which is nice. That's great. I love what you said about prioritizing. Do you have a specific system you use or do you kind of keep track of it all in your head? So I have a specific system for me. I don't think it's anything that anybody else has, but it's my system, which, you know, obviously everyone has to find what works for them. 
And for me, I sort of keep a running list of everything that's going on. And I prioritize based on what's most important to me. And before I volunteer for anything, I look at that sheet and say, okay, do I have time? Like realistically, do I have time? And if I do, do I want to spend the time that I have doing that? Or is that taking away from maybe time with my husband or time to just kind of hang out and have a little bit of quiet time, which is important. You know, you have to have downtime. And so I prioritize things based on what feels right to me. My job is in technology. And then I like to have sort of a mix of my passion projects, which have to do with animals and the environment. And then I have things that sort of have something to do with my educational background. And it's really nice when they all sort of overlap, but it's not necessarily always the case. But I try to get a little bit of everything. And that's how I kind of keep all of my areas being important things to me in order to stay fulfilled. I have a little bit of everything, but not too much where I can't handle everything. And so that's kind of my priorities to have a little bit of everything that I love and never too much of one or the other. I love the way you categorize everything into (laughs) meaningful areas of life. Yes, I love to compartmentalize things. And then, (laughs) you know, it never works out. Everything sort of overlaps in some way, shape or form. But I try to put them all in their little spaces. It makes me feel happy. (laughs) I love it. You mentioned having some things that require a tight deadline or a little bit more work. And I know with most of us having jobs, sometimes those things fall on our desk and we can't control how many items are in that compartment. Do you ever feel overwhelmed or stressed by those types of priorities getting dropped on your desk? I think that everyone does at some point. You know, it's nice to think that we can handle everything, but the more you handle, the more people think you can handle. So you kind of keep getting stuff thrown in your plate. And I think it's only natural that we get stressed or overwhelmed by the amount of things that sort of naturally just appear. You know, I can control what I do outside of work, but when it comes to my job, there's a lot that is required and asked of me. And I like that. I find that very fulfilling. But if I ever find myself where I'm overwhelmed, I think it's important to speak up. So if there's just too much going on, I have a really good working relationship with my manager. He's really great. And I feel like if I ever get to that point, I can definitely go to him and say, hey, I need a little bit of help. I need more time for this or I need someone to assist me with that because there's just too much going on. And so I think it's important to have that sort of working relationship where you can say those things and a self-realization of when you are overtasked. That's such an important point you make. When you are capable of doing more, people expect more of you and more and more and more. (laughs) And so being able to set those boundaries and recognize your limits and then vocalize them is so, so important. And for you, how do you know when you're reaching that limit or when you're starting to feel stressed or overwhelmed? I think my personality changes. I kind of turn inward a lot. And I notice that I have less tolerance for people. <laughs> and it's nothing that they've done. I mean, they can just walk into my office to say something and I instantly irritated. And it's not that they've done anything wrong. It's that I'm overtaxed at this point And what little time I have to get things done, you're interrupting, you know? 
and I get short tempered or I get irritable. And that's kind of that moment that I'm like, okay, I need to step back because I can't behave this way. That's not helpful to me or to anyone else. And when you work amongst other people and you work in a team, you know, even if you're not doing the same project, you're all a team, you need to be helpful and you need to be in a good place, you know, otherwise you're going to kind of hold that team back. So at that point, that's when I sort of step back and say, okay, I need to reassess. Let me look at what's on my plate and where I can either make some cuts on my own or where I need to go and have that conversation with my manager. Right. And that's such a great point that you make about noticing it and taking a step back. Because I think when we react in the moment, we have a hard time finding the words to say either to the person who's irritating us, that's not really doing anything irritating, or to our manager <laughs> when we need help. So for our listeners who might be nodding their heads right now saying, yes, that sounds like me. <laughs> What is a simple way we can break down what we need to say to our managers when we need to ask for more time or express that we're overwhelmed? Because I think when we feel overwhelmed, we often over-explain or under-explain exactly what's going on. Well, for me, the first thing I do is actually step back and breathe because I can have a bit of a temper. And so I've been working for years to keep that under control. And I'm really good at it now. And I know that just stopping, closing my eyes for a second and breathing gives me that sort of, okay, I need to come back to, to neutral. So I bring myself back to neutral first. And then the first thing I do is, again, I look at that list and I say, okay, where am I at? And what is overtaxing me, you know, where I need to be. And then when I speak to my manager, I do it from a place of business and not from emotion. I think it's important to remember that we as human beings are emotional, but not everybody is going to understand your emotion. And so I don't expect my manager to understand my emotions. You know, I barely expect my husband to understand my emotions, much less <laughs> my manager. <laughs> And so I try to do things from a very neutral place, you know, and say, okay, here's the facts. I have this project, this project, this project, this project. I have all these deliverables, you know, and they're all due on this date or that date. I'm not going to make some things. I need some help. Can we look at what can either have a deliverable date moved or if we have maybe an intern or someone who can help me kind of take some of the smaller things off my plate. And so I think it's important to just approach it from a place of business and not emotions. It's very easy to be emotional when you're stressed, but other people don't respond well to everyone's emotions. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. It is a place of business. So approach it from a business perspective. That's so true. And look at the facts. Yep. You mentioned that you have your PhD, and you also said you've been working on your temper for a long time, that it, it may have shown itself earlier in life. Could you tell us about a time when you were under a lot of pressure and you turned it around into an opportunity where you were able to overcome an obstacle? I think most recently would be retiring from the military. You know, everything is so stable for 20 years. You know, there's some instability, you move around, but for the most part, 
you are guaranteed a paycheck every first and 15th of the month. You know, your medical is taken care of, your dental is taken care of, everything is just taken care of. I'm 38 years old and I had to figure out how to set up an appointment with a normal insurance and deal with that stuff. Like I never had to deal with that in the military. You just call the clinic and you make an appointment and you never see a bill. You never see anything. Now I had to learn these things because those things are all sort of taken care of and it's very stable. And when you're looking to get out of the military and you're transitioning out, and for me it was retirement, you start to worry, you know, did I do enough to be marketable? I have 20 years of experience doing this and I went and got a degree in a whole completely different area. And so you start to kind of question your decisions, you know, did I go down the wrong path? Did I just create this? completely different, you know, experience and academic background where I'm not going to have a place. There's going to be no middle ground for me. And so I was really stressed about this and I didn't really tell anyone. I didn't even really talk to my husband about it for a while because you don't always know how to express that, you know, especially to my husband. He thinks I can do anything. And so for him, it was like, what are you worried about? You'll get a job. You'll be fine. And for me, it's, what if I don't get a job? What if I did all of this and I end up unemployed? You know, <laughs> Those are the things that, you know, kind of creep into your head as you are having that huge change in your entire life. And so I started researching because that's what I'm good at. I'm good at <laughs> learning and researching and finding answers. <laughs> and I found this program called the Corporate Fellowship Program. It's run through a nonprofit called Hiring Our Heroes, and they set up internships. It's a 12-week fellowship program. While you're still active duty in your last, I think, six months, and you will work for a different company, but it's a very competitive program, and it's hard to get into, and I wasn't sure if anybody would want to interview me or if I would actually get selected. Well, I did. I got selected with Lockheed Martin, and... I said, I have 12 weeks to prove to all these engineers <laughs> that I have something to provide here because, I mean, Lockheed Martin's known for hiring engineers and for being very tech savvy. And I have a soft sciences background, so it's different. And that's another thing that I was a little bit stressed about. Like, okay, I'm here, but where do I fit? And so I kind of made that a challenge for me. I'm a very competitive person. So I took it as a challenge and I said, I need to find a place where I fit here because I really wanted to work here. And I just said, you know, let me see where I fit in. And I sat through meetings and I listened. And when I had something intelligent to say, I like to be quiet until I actually have something really important to say. That's when I would speak. And I started to find my place. And I found that that was important and communicating with who is now my manager a lot really helped me to find what they needed and those gaps that I filled. Because when you have a lot of engineers, you don't have people considering that people aspect. And some do, don't get me wrong. A lot of them actually do. But I just bring a different perspective from that very hard sciences background. It's just a different spin. So it's variety. And when I was interviewed, this was one of the things that they said they were interested in. And so I make sure to bring that to the table when I'm at work, or at least try to, because I know that's where I fit. But I also work doing a lot of what I did before I came to Lockheed. So I realized I found that sort of happy medium. And 
it worked out in the end, but it was extremely stressful. And I took a lot of time self-reflecting on how I can make this an opportunity that can go from a 12-week fellowship to a career. And it worked, but it was a lot of sleepless nights. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Congratulations on finding <laughs> what sounds like your dream job, like the best case scenario. It is. I'm very happy here. Everyone's been fantastic and it's a very fulfilling job. It kind of brought in all the pieces that I liked about my old job, along with the pieces that I liked about what I went to school for and the research. And it kind of put all the pieces together for me. And so I'm very, very lucky. That's awesome. Now, did you have a plan B if this didn't work out? <laughs> uh, yes. I did have a plan B. There was two other job offers that I had that I had really, truly considered. One I had actually taken, and it was from a fantastic company that had phenomenal benefits. They were great. I loved everything about them. And they have a great reputation, but they were so far. The traffic was even just normal traffic. I could take anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours to get home. And I actually accepted the job with them and I feel really bad about this, but when I first accepted the job with them, I was so excited and I wanted to work there. And then every day I would look at ways and I would see how long it would take me to get home. And it was just anywhere between an hour and a half to two hours one way. And it just started to cause me this anxiety. I was like, how much time do I want to spend on the road? And so I actually ended up turning it down and thankfully I ended up getting this job, but I did sort of have a plan B, but I kind of abandoned it. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad you got your first yeah. choice with a better commute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was probably not the best way to go about it, but I kind of abandoned my plan B and just said, let's hope this all works out. I'm going and all in. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You said something really interesting about being an intern and speaking up when you had something intelligent to say. And I think that's something, especially being in a position as an intern, regardless of your educational background, it can be really intimidating to speak up, even if you think you have something intelligent to say. There's always that, you know, do I have enough experience or is there someone more experienced in the room or am I going to sound dumb that kind of can creep into people's minds? So how did you know when it was the right time to say what you had to say? Well, some of it is luck and some of it, you just sort of know, this is something I understand. And this is something that needs to be said or isn't being discussed. But I was actually given a lot of opportunity. My current manager was actually the person in charge of the two fellows that we had here. So me and my counterpart. And when we first met our first day, there was some weather issues. And so lights were all out in the building. And we just kind of sat around in his office talking, just casual conversation. And there was a lot of things that came up. And it was interesting because as we were talking about it, one of the CTO's admins came in and she brought up the same conversation we were having about how difficult it is to get top talent into classified research positions. 
And so we were having this conversation and I was saying it's very hard because our top talent today has had a cell phone since they were 10, maybe younger. They don't want to give it up to go into a classified environment. That's very hard for them. And so it has to be made worth kind of giving up that almost extension of their arm, you know, whereas people who are a little bit older didn't have a cell phone until they were older. So it's not as hard to give up for the eight or 10 hours a day that you work. And so this was the conversation we were having. And it was interesting because the admin came in and she said that the CTO had just had this conversation and said the same thing in an address that he was making to some of the people at work. And it was kind of that moment that it told me, okay, I get people. And so maybe that's when I'll speak up. And my manager, he said the same thing. You know, he was like, you understand people. You need to speak up. And I still have trouble speaking up. I'm not an intern anymore, but I'm just naturally the type that says, well, I have two ears and one mouth, so I should be listening twice as much as I speak. <laughs> but I do get told that I need to speak up more. And I'm working on that. I am. But I do like to listen. And then when I do have something to say, I find I try to get myself to actually speak up. It's a learning process. It's difficult. You have to sort of have a conscious effort to say, okay, I need to speak up. I need to say something. And so one of my mentors, it was one of the things that she told me, you know, you need to speak up in meetings. She said, even if you just ask a question, it doesn't matter how brilliant it is. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room to speak, but say something so that you're heard and that they know that you're listening and you're a part of the meeting for a reason. And so I'm working on that. It is a work in progress for me. That's great advice. I and I think listening is a really important skill to have as well on top of being able to speak up. And like you said, letting people know that you're listening and you're actually paying attention and you're not just quietly being disengaged. Yes, it's difficult because I like to listen and it's a very different environment than what I came from. So I'm constantly learning from the people around me. And so I am engaged but I need to make sure that they see that I'm engaged as well. And so uh, it's easier said than done. And I wish I had some really great advice to give people that that is something I am still working on as well. Well, I think it's something that is definitely something that people have to learn as they go, paying attention to body language and, you know, even just nodding your head, making eye contact with people if it's appropriate culturally in the situation that you're in. Yes. and. Things like that can go a really long way. It does. And it also has a lot to do with, you know, sometimes I think women tend to sit in the background and listen a lot more. You know, men can fill the airtime a lot. And that's not a bad thing. It's just I will tend to wait until there's an opening. And by that point, someone else has already <laughs> taken that opening. And so I need to realize that they're not trying to prevent me from speaking, but I need to actually be a little bit more forceful and getting engaged in the conversation as well. So there are things that I think we all just kind of have to grow into. And that's one for me. Absolutely. And when you're feeling stressed out or overwhelmed, what do you do that helps you relieve some of that stress? You mentioned taking a step back and just breathing. Is there anything else that's been really helpful for you to kind of relieve that stress in the moment? So in the moment, I have been practicing breathing exercises, so sort of 
I don't want to say it's meditation or mindfulness or anything like that, but sort of just breathing exercises. I find that breathing and sort of clearing my head brings me back to sort of that neutral place. And if it gets really bad, I tend to work out a lot. I mean, I'm at the gym pretty early in the morning. That really helps to sort of keep me neutral throughout the day and not just in that moment. I know people think, okay, you go to the gym and you relieve your stress at the gym and you just sort of either bury it all day or it's just that moment. But for me, it's not just that moment. I notice if I'm eating healthy, if I am working out, if I'm taking care of myself, coming back to neutral after a little bit of breathing exercises is a lot easier than it would be if I'm eating a bunch of junk food and I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not working out. Coming back to neutral is a lot harder when I am not at my best. And so I make sure that I take care of myself. I try to eat healthy. I try to work out. And I find that those things, having that little bit of time for me, that quiet time, those help me get really in control of my emotions because I never get too overwhelmed. And I think that that's important to never allow yourself to get to this point where everything has been built up. And then it's a lot easier to come back to neutral when it hasn't been built up so much. And so I watch as well. I watch my level of stress, I guess. And when I start to notice I'm getting too much of anything, I have to step back. I step back before it's at a point where I can't control it anymore or where I'm just beyond repair. I have to go take the rest of the day off. I try to stop before that ever happens. And I find taking care of myself really helps to prevent me from ever getting to that breaking point. Those are all great points and things that anybody can do. I don't know about waking up at 3 a.m. to go to the gym, but (laughs) everyone can go for a walk, exercise, breathe, Mm -hmm. try to eat healthier. It's very accessible tips. I'll tell you a secret. I get up at three in the morning because it's like autopilot and I don't have all day to come up with a really good excuse to not work out, which I will. If I try to work out after work, by the time I get home, I have 10 million reasons and they're good reasons too. 10 million reasons why I cannot work out today. <laughs> so, so if I do it first thing in the morning, it's sort of autopilot and I'm half asleep while I'm getting ready. And then by the time I actually start to work out, I'm already awake. I'm already here. It's already early. We'll just get it done. So I get it done really early, but it doesn't have to be working out. You know, that's not the place for everyone. You know, if you get stressed and you find that that's sort of where you're at and you're at work, step away and go take a walk. You know, I know people say they can't leave or they have so much work, but you know what? It can wait. Everything will be there when you get back in 15 minutes. Put things down, go walk outside and take a breath of fresh air and just breathe for a minute and then you can come back in. That little bit of walking around releases that pent up energy that you sort of build up as you stress out. So take that time, even if it's just a small walk in the middle of the day. And I think lunch is a big thing. People love to eat at their desk while they're working because they have so much to do, but it's actually one of the worst things you can do. It's never having that break in the day. So even if you take 15 minutes to go and eat somewhere else, it doesn't have to be, you know, anywhere else, but eat and just focus on eating and having a break 
it's that middle of the day moment that you get just for you, even if it's just 15 minutes, if you bring your lunch to work and you eat a sandwich by the window looking outside, that it's just a moment of break. It's a peaceful moment of you having time to yourself. And I think that that's really important. Great tips. And I want to switch gears a little bit and focus on sure. the work that you did for your PhD. Sure. So you did your dissertation on compassion fatigue in wildlife rescue and rehabilitation workers in South Africa. Would you briefly describe for our listeners what compassion fatigue is and how we can relate to it in our day-to-day -day lives when we're caring about another living being, whether it's a human or a pet or an animal, and feeling responsible for their well-being? Okay, so compassion fatigue is made up of compassion satisfaction. So how satisfied are you with being a caregiver with that type of job? And by job, I don't necessarily mean a career. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's also made up of burnout. So where are you professionally? Are you overtaxed? Are you running on zero and burning out and no longer able to do this job to the best of your abilities? And secondary traumatic stress. And secondary traumatic stress is actually the type of trauma that you get from hearing the stories of other people who have primary trauma, which is, you know, they've endured some sort of direct traumatic experience. And so when you think of compassion fatigue, you're thinking of people who are caregivers to, whether it be in the medical field, medical field is actually very high, whether you're in a veterinary school veterinarians and stuff, they also have a lot of compassion fatigue. And then you have basic caregivers. You can have a spouse taking care of someone with PTSD. Hearing those stories and hearing what they went through, that's extremely traumatic when it's so vivid. You know, people talk about their traumas and they see it as if it had been just yesterday. You know, you don't forget trauma. Well, I guess you can forget trauma depending on how you process things. But if you're suffering from PTSD, you definitely haven't forgotten. You see what's going on. And so they can be very descriptive in what they're saying happened and what they experienced. And so we as human beings, we imagine things and we see it. You know, it's like being told a story, only it's a real story. And eventually it can kind of take over our own thoughts and present just as any type of other trauma would, as if it was firsthand, only it wasn't. It was secondary. Counselors are very susceptible as well, you know, especially those who are treating people with trauma. So when you look at compassion fatigue, you're looking at a combination of how high is their level of burnout? Do they have, and at what level, any secondary traumatic stress? And how much compassion satisfaction do they have to sort of counteract those other two? And so there's a test that you can take there's a self-assessment, or you can actually go and get tested. But really, you can kind of tell. There's a lot of things that you can sort of see for yourself. When you start to lose that compassion that you had when you initially went into the job, or when you initially started to do that, when you start to become numb, when you start becoming irritable, and your personality changes, and you're no longer the person that you used to be, you know you are suffering from something. It could be just burnout, but chances are if you're lacking that same level of compassion, 
you are suffering from compassion fatigue. If you're starting to really focus on the traumas that other people have had, or if you're starting to really focus on one patient as opposed to another, or when your ability to focus and provide that same level of care that you always did to every single person or animal that you are caring for, that's a big red flag. You don't really need a test to know what that is. However, most people don't know that compassion fatigue is an actual thing. They know the symptoms, they know the signs, they know something's wrong, but they don't have a name for it. And that was sort of something that I realized going into my study. Most people didn't really understand what it was, that there was an actual name for what they were feeling. And so after people find the name for it and they know what it's called, would you say that's the first step towards changing it or starting to feel better? I think education is always key. You know, the more you know, the more you understand, the more, one, you're not just weird. It's very easy to think, why am I feeling so upset over someone else's trauma? You know, why am I seeing this? Why am I having nightmares? Why am I daydreaming about this? And why is this taking up all of my energy? Knowing that that's normal and that that happens to other people, that takes away the thought that you need to sort of hide it or bury it or just, you know, that you're being silly. You know, it takes away the stigma that you sort of place on it yourself because it doesn't seem like it should be happening. So that's that first level of care. Once you find out it's real, it happens to a lot of people. And the best thing about finding out what compassion fatigue is that it's completely treatable. You can completely reverse all of the signs of compassion fatigue. Completely. If you take care of yourself and you actually put the effort in to ensure that you are doing the self-care that is necessary, you can take away all of those symptoms. You can go back to being happy and loving what you do and providing the best level of care to those that you are caring for. I agree completely. I was a trauma ICU nurse for three years in my 10-year wow. nursing career. And I remember about five years in, I know I've read Malcolm Gladwell's book about needing 10,000 hours to be considered an expert. And I think at about five <laughs> years, I had about 10,000 hours where I felt like I could go to work and do my job and not really think about it. I was in these stressful situations and I wasn't feeling stressed out anymore and I knew I could handle it. And I got thank you cards from my patients saying how great I was. And I just remember looking in the mirror and not really being able to recognize myself. So when you said your personality changes, I definitely felt that. And I had studied compassion fatigue in nursing school, but I didn't really put two and two together or associate it with that. And I didn't know what was going on. So if someone is feeling that way at their job, and I think, Probably journalists feel this way too if they're covering car accidents. Yes, I remember watching absolutely. the news. Yeah, watching the news before work, I would see all these car accidents and tragedies, and I would know that I was going to meet those people when I went to work. And working in media now, I can only imagine what the journalists on the scene were feeling in those moments. What are the steps towards starting to feel better? and completely recovering from these feelings and getting your personality back and not feeling so irritable and knowing that you're doing a good job and really taking care of others. 
So the American Institute of Stress has a really great, they call it the ABCs of prevention. And I think it's a really great simple way of sort of implementing this on a day-to-day -day basis. And even if you find, okay, I'm already past prevention, I'm here. The preventative steps are the same as it would be for reversing those signs. And so the first thing you need to do is have awareness. So you need to think about, is there these situations that I'm experiencing unusually strong reaction to, or that is overpowering my normal coping mechanisms? If there are, is it preventing you from functioning the way you would normally function? Or are you struggling getting to work or being motivated to go to work? Are you frustrated or irritated easily? Do you lack that normal compassion? You know, being aware that, okay, these are the signs and I'm having them. I'm obviously beyond prevention at this point. So here I am at stage two, which would be balance. So you want to either, if you're preventing, you want to keep balance in your life. But if you've already kind of passed that point and you have, and you know that you are suffering from some level, whether it be low or high of compassion fatigue, you need to restore balance and you start by practicing some kind of self-care. And at this point, you need to make this a priority. If you are truly suffering from compassion fatigue, your self-care needs to be your number one priority. Going and taking a vacation in Hawaii is going to feel great when you're there. And then when you come back, you're going to be right back to where you started. So that's not the answer. But you may need to take some time off to actually recharge a little bit and practice that self-care. Find that thing, that activity or whatever it may be that gives you pleasure and joy and is a complete diversion from your everyday responsibilities that is causing you that level of stress and put it in your schedule. I don't care if you have to write it in your calendar and actually schedule time to go on a nature walk every morning or afternoon or after work or whatever it may be during lunch or to go to the gym, put it on your calendar, schedule it. If you schedule it, then it's a part of your day. And just like everything else that you do, you've made time for it. And for some people, that means getting up at three o'clock in the morning like I do. I know that's not pleasurable <laughs> for other people, but find that thing that you need to do. Even if it's a yoga class that you take through an app on your phone that you're going to do in the morning, it's finding that thing that's going to give you pleasure and it is going to be a diversion from what you are normally doing every day and make time for it. And I include your family in this, you know, friends, schedule time to go and be around your friend and your family. Schedule a date night with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it may be. Schedule that time and it's time to get away from what you're doing. Schedule time to make yourself a priority. And sometimes that means creating boundaries. When I leave work, I am not allowed to, you know, dwell on this all night long. Maybe what I need to do is vent on it, get it out, whatever it may be. And then I go back to something that brings me joy. I can't dwell on these things. You know, you have to set boundaries for yourself as well. You also want to take time to... Focus on getting meaning from the negative aspects of your job. So, you know, one thing I found with all of the people who I interviewed during my research in South Africa, the one thing they had in common, and it didn't matter 
how upset they were over an incident that may have happened. Maybe they lost an animal for one reason or another. No matter how upset they were, they all had the same thing to say. But you know, I saved so many other lives. You know, we do such a good thing here. You know, without us, these animals wouldn't have a place to recover. They would die. You know, they found that even though there was negative aspects, there was a positive, meaningful impact to what they were doing. And so it's important to keep that impact and that meaning of what you're doing, the reasons that you started that job, keep that at the forefront. Focus on that and find gratitude. Transform that negative impact of your work into something positive. That's extremely important. And then if you find that all of this is not working, you may be beyond a point that you can really do this yourself. Go get help from a professional. Make sure whatever counselor or therapist you find understands compassion fatigue, works with people who are suffering from compassion fatigue, and can help you. You know, find someone who can get you back on track. They have ways of doing this and they will help you if all of your efforts to kind of get back to balance on your own are not working. It's also important to keep in mind that you have friends and family. You need to sort of find places for them and bring them into your life. So you need to balance not just yourself, but your soul. You know, finding that calm, peaceful place, whether it is to go to church or to have a spiritual place for yourself or time to read. Do something to take care of your soul just for you. It doesn't have to be church. It doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be faith. It can be whatever it is for you that sort of cleanses and feeds your soul. And then finally, the C is connections. So talk to someone. It doesn't have to be a therapist. You know, process your thoughts and reactions with someone who understands. It could be a coworker, it could be a therapist, it could be a priest if that's what you want, family, friends, supervisor, spouse, significant other. These are the people who care about you and understand what you're going through and they will listen. Use them as a part of your life and you know, the part that brings you back to neutral, to balance. And then finally, and this is just something I think, Animals have a tendency to lower blood pressure and heart rate when you're interacting with them. So if you're a pet lover, spend some time with your pets. Play with them. They will take all the love you can give and never require more. They'll just love all you have to give and they will love you back 100%. So if you have time and you are feeling a little stressed and you have a pet, show them some love. They'll show you that right back. It's really, really therapeutic. Those are all wonderful tips. And I love the one about having a pet and practicing that <laughs> unconditional love. They are really good at that. Yes, they are. So <laughs> when we're focusing at work and work seems to be the reason why we're experiencing this compassion fatigue for the professions that you listed earlier, how do you think companies can make it easier for employees to manage this compassion fatigue? Because I know the suicide rates are going up among healthcare professionals, and we're paying attention to these levels of depression and stress a little bit more. What solution do you think 
could be offered or is being offered to people that they might not even know they have access to? So I think one of the biggest things is education. When you're working in these fields, they need to start with educating people on what compassion fatigue is, what resources they have, where they can go to get help if they need help, and talk to their employees about their policies on mental health care. Unfortunately, not all companies offer mental health care as part of their benefits package, but a lot do. And particularly fields that work in trauma, they're really good about these things. And so talking to your employees and explaining what they have available to them really helps to, one, remove the stigma associated with any sort of mental health issues, whether it be compassion fatigue or depression or anything, you know, talking about it and saying, we're here, we're not here to judge you. We want to help you. We know these things happen. That's the first really big start. And I think understanding that, you know, a sick day and a mental health day, they're really not any different. I think companies need to start allowing their people to take a mental health day if they need a day off. And in some careers, they need to encourage them taking time off. The one thing I noticed (laughs) about wildlife rescue workers was that it was like a badge of honor to be able to say, I have not taken a day off in 368 days. You know, (laughs) I was like, oh my God, no, no, that is not something to be proud of. (laughs) And (laughs) stop, go somewhere, go do something, take a day off. But in some cases, you know, I met people who were like, what I do, I love this. There's nothing more that I want to do than this right here. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. This is how I want to spend my day. Should I read a book? That's boring. You know, <laughs> She actually told me that. And <laughs> the funny thing is her results, she had the highest level of compassion satisfaction. So she really, truly just loved what she did. And it didn't matter the good and the bad. She took it all and just loved her job. And so whatever she was doing to maintain her resiliency is phenomenal. But for most people, you do need to take some time off, encourage people to take time off, encourage them to learn and utilize the resources that your company provides. And I think when you start to educate people on what it is and what it looks like, you know, symptom wise, you can see it in other people. It's pretty easy. It's pretty clear. You know, when I would talk to the rescue workers and I explained to them what it is, oh yeah, my friend has that big time. (laughs) They could recognize it in each other. And the one thing, you know, they said was like, oh yeah, you know, I see it all the time. That happens all the time, particularly with burnout, you know, recognizing it in each other and being able to say, hey, you're seeming a little on edge. You are stressed. Maybe you should take some time off. Do you need to talk? Are you okay? Are you okay is one of the most powerful questions you can ask someone. If they are really struggling with something, that three words is so important. It shows them that you care and it gives them a place to speak because people don't always want to talk about what they're struggling with until they are sure someone is actually willing to listen to them and genuinely ask, are you okay? Not sort of the way we tend to do and say, hey, how's it going? And not really want to know how it's going. You know, actually sit them down and say, are you okay? You seem off. You know, 
you seem upset or you're not yourself lately. These things tell them that you want to hear what they have to say and that you value them as a friend and you are trying to be there for them. That's what a lot of people need when they're really upset and they're looking for a place to have that outlet and someone to speak to. You're so right. And I think often we can notice things in other people before we notice them in ourselves. Absolutely. You know, they can be stressed and upset and think that it's normal. But when someone comes to them and says, are you okay? You're not yourself lately. It's almost like it dawns on you like, oh my God, I'm not myself lately. You're right. Let's have a conversation. And sometimes just venting is enough to kind of get you back to neutral for that moment. You know, you may still need to continue to work at it. You can't keep giving everything and then not putting anything back into yourself. But for that moment, being able to have that conversation and talk about what's bothering you, that can be that moment where you put a little back on your plate. You've given a little bit back to yourself. That's so true. And I think there's research to support that disclosure or just admitting that you're not okay to somebody is a powerful way to begin healing. Yes. It's that weight being lifted off your shoulders. You're no longer holding it in. You're no longer bearing it or hiding it from the world. It's a huge relief. So after people heal from this compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress, how do they know they've made it or they're in the clear mm -hmm. and they've overcome it? Well, I don't think you're ever in the clears and it will never come back. And you always have to put the work in to take care of yourself. But I think you know that you've gotten past that really bad moment or that situation that you've kind of gotten past what you were suffering from at that time because you go back to normal. You're back at neutral. You're happy again. You care again. You aren't dreading going to work. You know, everything sort of comes back to where you started and where you loved what you did or where you have a realization that maybe you need to step back from what you did, whatever it may be, you're happy again. You're no longer irritable. Your relationships are back to normal. You know, I think one of the big indicators is when your relationships are no longer normal and the way it used to be, and you're frustrated with your partner, you're taking out your bad day on them and they don't know how to help you. That's sort of a big sign that something's off. And when everything goes back and you start to function normally again and you have normal relationships and you process your emotions normally and you're able to manage your stress at a normal level, that's when you're back. That's when you know you've kind of gotten over it and that you're okay. Right. And when you say normal, is normal different for each individual person? Absolutely. It's normal like for you. Like baseline? Yeah, it's baseline for you. It's normal for you. Not normal for me, because my normal is very different from everyone else's normal. But normal for you, what's your normal happy place? What's your normal level of stress? What's your normal level of anxiety about whatever it is you're about to see? Because there's always going to be a bit of anxiety, like you were saying, when you saw that car accident on the news, you knew that you were going to meet them. That's a little bit of anxiety coming at you. But what's your normal level of anxiety? Are you in the corner having a panic attack? Because that's probably not your normal level of anxiety. <laughs> or are you just, right. oh man, we're going to have this. Okay, we need to get prepared and you kind of get a little hyped up. But that's a normal level of anxiety for you, what you would normally experience. So normal is relative. There's no standard. 
but normal is just what's normal for you. Well, I could keep talking about this topic forever with you and ask you a million more questions, but we have to wrap up the interview. Okay. And I always end with a few quick questions where I just want you to say the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. The first one is, what does it mean to feel successful to you? Happy. If I'm happy, I feel like I'm successful. I'm not chasing anything anymore. What is something you've accomplished that you're most proud of? Finishing my PhD. What are you most looking forward to this year? Oh, my travel schedule for work and kind of really learning more about what I do. And, you know, I'm relatively new. I've been here for six months. So learning more about the company and what we do and really digging into my job and my travel. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. And this one's kind of fun. What is going to keep you up at night after this interview? Oh, sounding stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your yep. favorite book or resource? So I am a huge fan of going and just watching TED Talks. I love TED Talks because I can turn it on when I'm in the car and almost play it as I'm driving home from work. And you can learn so much on TED Talks. People are so inspirational. But if we're looking at compassion fatigue, there is a website called the Compassion Fatigue Awareness Project, and it's compassionfatigue.org. So if anybody's looking for a really good resource on that, they have self-tests, they have paths to wellness, they have resources, reading lists. They're a really fantastic place to go if you are looking for information on compassion fatigue. So that's my two. Amazing. And bonus question, what's your favorite okay. TED Talk? Hmm, that's a really difficult one. I can't remember his name, but he talks about how he's been to the North Pole and the South Pole and the things that you've seen. And I don't know the actual name of the talk, but that was really my favorite because it was really fantastic. Oh, and Duncan Wardle just released a TED Talk on innovation. That was fantastic. So yeah, probably one of those two. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was such an informative and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being here. What did you think? I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to let me know what you thought about this or what you'd like to hear in a future episode of the show, just send me a message on Instagram at Tara Ray Bradford. My intention with this show is to share tools and tips for how you can handle everything on your plate. So I'd love to know what you thought. And if you want to check out the links and everything from the show, go on over to handleeverything.com. Be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. And if you'd like to connect with Dr. Caro on LinkedIn, you can find her there. Thank you again to Dr. Caro for being on the show. And thank you to everyone listening in. This podcast wouldn't exist if you weren't here supporting it. And if you'd like to help us reach more listeners like you, we would be so incredibly grateful if you left us a review. From me and the podcast team, have a wonderful day. Hey, in case I haven't said thank you enough yet, thanks for listening to the Handle Everything podcast at handleeverything.com. 